The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, and see if that had done count. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Lisa Nandy. Lisa has been a member of parliament for Wigan since 2010. Earlier this year, she came third in the election to succeed Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. And she's currently the Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. And given the state of Britain and the world, extremely busy. I'm therefore very grateful that she has been able to carve out some time from her busy schedule for Radical. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? Growing up, Colin Jackson was someone that I just thought was absolutely brilliant. I know this is totally not answering your question at all, but <laughs> I just love athletics. So, you know, and obviously now I support Wigan Warriors and Wigan Athletic, but then, and, and all my life, I've just absolutely loved athletics. I think it's brilliant. Okay. What is your favourite political song? Well, Taylor Swift is getting more political nowadays. So let me think. She did a song recently about Trump called Only the Young, which was about trying to get people to kind of stop crying and rise up and do something. I think anything by Stormzy as well. I once had dinner with Billy Bragg. I appreciate I'm already name dropping. I don't know him very well, but I think he's fantastic. I asked him, where's the political response to what's happening in the music world? And he said, it's not where you think. It's not in the mainstream. It's grime, it's rap. That's where it's really yeah. coming through. When I had him on, that was also what he said, as well as the fact that just today, because of social media, musicians have become less important because there are so many other channels. And now for the difficult one, what is your favorite political book? So this is an, I was dreading you asking me this question. This is a nightmare. I'm sure academics have more problems actually than politicians with this one. There's some books that have completely opened my eyes. The Communist Manifesto was one. The Prince by Machiavelli. And the discourse is much misunderstood, I think, but about the challenges of being in public life and the way in which you have to make decisions that often compromise your own personal beliefs for the greater good. The Forward March of Labour Halted was a big influence on me as a teenager Eric Hobsbawm was good friends with a number of people in my family and has always been very influential. There's a book by George Dangerfield called The Strange Death of Liberal England as well, which I think has quite important lessons for Labour in there too. I guess my favourite political book, I think, is a book called The State versus Nelson Mandela, which was written about the account of the trial of Nelson Mandela and the other activists who were convicted of terrorist offences in South Africa. And it's written by their lawyer, Joel Joffe, who died a few years ago. I got to know Joel after I first got elected to Parliament. There should be a book about him. He's honestly one of the most inspirational people. And it's full of not just history, but lessons about how to conduct yourself in difficult circumstances. It's really incredibly inspiring. I would definitely recommend it. Right. Now, before I start with the questions that I had lined up, we just learned that Boris Johnson told the Brits to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. Is he just playing political hardball or was this the end goal all along? 
I mean, the difficulty is nobody really knows, and I'm not sure that he knows. We've been arguing about Brexit now for four years, four long years in Britain. I think the only people that are still arguing about it are within the Conservative Party, and there doesn't even seem to be agreement within 10 Downing Street about what they want to do. So if you talk to a lot of Tory MPs, they say, no, he absolutely wants to get a deal. We will get a deal. Privately, they'll say it won't be a very good deal for Britain because he just hasn't put in the groundwork to get the right result. But they think there will. And I think there is a calculation going on amongst some people in government that says that the disruption caused by COVID is a good cover for the disruption that would be caused by a no-deal Brexit. So I think it depends which voice wins in government, really. So you already mentioned your family a bit earlier, and your father, Deepak Nandi, was a Marxist academic who became an anti-racist activist. And he was the first director of the Runnymede Trust, known for its work on Islamophobia and race relations. How has his experience as an immigrant from India and as an anti-racist activist shaped you as a person and as a politician? So there's a line in Eric Hobsbawm's biography, which I once read to my dad and said, does this make sense to you? And he said, absolutely. It was a line that said that as an immigrant to this country, he always felt that he saw things at a slight tangent to the world. And my dad feels that very strongly, that as somebody who came to Britain in his late teens and has lived here for most of his life, he still sees things from a slightly different perspective quite often. He feels... I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he feels slightly detached from India and in some ways slightly detached from British society too. And I think the combination of that, him being an immigrant to Britain, plus the fact that he's an academic, he's interested in different traditions, different arguments. As children growing up, he was never particularly interested in us having a particular view. We just wanted to understand our reasons for holding it. And I think the combination of those two things has, has had quite a big impact on me because it means that I'm not particularly tribal. You know, I hate some of the things that the Conservative Party are doing to Britain, but I recognise as well that there are people who went into politics on their side who were well motivated, even if I disagree with them. I think that Conservative tradition, the one nation Conservative tradition, has been quite an important thing to understand British politics. And I think that there's something to learn from every political tradition. My granddad was a Liberal MP and leader of the House of Lords for some time. You know, there are lots of different political views in my family. You know, it makes you more curious, I suppose, it makes you want to explore different things and feel that you've, got, you've always got something to offer, but also something to learn. So in 2019, you gave the Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture at University College Oxford, which was entitled, What the Age of Populism Means for Our Liberal Democracy. So what does it mean? <laughs> In a nutshell, you don't want to plow the whole speech. If I think back on that lecture, it feels like I gave it in a different era. I'm not sure what I said then, but I suppose what I did feel then and what I still feel now, we were in the middle in Britain at being engulfed in populism from all sides. You could see it in all political parties, in the leadership of those political parties, but also on the back benches. You know, lots of angst in Britain about social media and whether that's responsible because of the way in which it sort of simplifies, but it also forces people to the extremes in order to be heard and amplifies those voices. And I was getting increasingly concerned that that was the poison that had been allowed to creep into our political debate, where issues were stripped of their complexity, their nuance. And because of that, we weren't even defining the problems that we had in Britain, let alone finding the right solutions. 
I'd watched over the course of the previous decade in Parliament as the conversation quite often had switched from what is the right thing to do as the starting point to what is the thing that we can do that people will accept. Mm -hmm. Politicians have become followers rather than leaders. Yeah, so a lot of friends sort of pointed me in the direction of some reading around it. That's when I first came across your book, which I read and quoted heavily in that lecture. Hopefully you haven't read it because you wrote quite a bit of it. But um, also, you know, looking at some sort of reading around what was happening to people across the world, you know, why these trends were happening. The fact that we've always had populism in some senses. But I suppose what I feel is different about the last few years is that I think right across the world, you've had people who felt not just shut out of economic power, you know, watching their communities decline, losing good jobs from those areas, seeing young people moving away for want of opportunities. And it's been heavily, heavily concentrated in particular parts of the world outside of the big urban centres. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also at the same time had this huge sort of expansion of higher education, you know, opportunities opening up to people for the first time. It's almost created an us and them. And in Britain and in America, the way that that's often played out is that you get, you know, communities that have seen 40 years of relative decline outside of the big cities with young people leaving, ageing populations, losing their spending power, the high street falling to pieces. People feeling very, very angry about economic and political settlement that hasn't just denied them the foundation of their community, but has denied them a voice as well. And then on the flip side, you've got these sort of overcrowded cities where young people have to move to get good opportunities, where housing costs are going through the roof, where air pollution is now a major problem, congestion and transport problems. And somehow or other, we've got to reset because what happened with Brexit in Britain, what happened with climate change in Australia, which split the progressive left apart again and allowed populism to thrive. What happened with the loss of the Rust Belt in the United States for the Democrats that put Trump into the White House? We've lost the ability to understand one another. And these these things are now very geographically polarised. And in our political system in Britain, that's a real problem because what you had for the last few years with Brexit is some members of Parliament like me going home to Wigan every week after Parliament had stopped sitting, just hearing people say, we want to leave, we voted to leave, a second referendum would be absurd. And then other members of Parliament, like my friend Stella Creasy, going home to Walthamstow and hearing precisely the opposite. And the representative constituency-based political system that we have It should have been part of the solution, really. It should have enabled us to come to Parliament and find ways to work that out and deal with those very different perspectives in different parts of the country. But instead, what happened, because we have a very adversarial parliamentary system, was that those two things clashed and those two parts of the country battled it out, basically, for four years until eventually we had the election and the question was settled. Right. But you can also look at it in a different way. Most of the major parties were founded over a century ago for a completely different society. The argument today is, well, something went wrong and we have to go back to how it used to be. We have to go back to representing the different groups that we used to represent. But maybe that ship has sailed. And maybe there are just new divisions within society that create new alliances and new realignment. Is it that important to get back the voters you lost or is it more important to find new alliances for the same policies? Because one of the things I find often problematic in this discourse is that, again, politicians follow their voters. 
Because maybe the voters have changed or rather they have changed their priorities. I don't necessarily think that societies have become, for example, more xenophobic or more authoritarian, actually less. But for certain voters, this has become a more important issue. And so you as a pro-Remain politician in a Leave district are kind of split. And you have often criticized the media and the political establishment in Britain, and I think rightly so, for being too London-centric. But aren't you generalizing on the basis of a similarly particular group, Wigan being the industrial north? Isn't that distinction something of the past too? I think I sort of agree with what the sort of charge that you're leveling at me, although I'm not sure that I kind of agree that that's what I've done. A few years ago, a group of us, my friends Will Jennings, who's a professor at Southampton University, and and Ian Warren, Mm -hmm. who's a data analyst, decided to set up a think tank called Centre for Towns. And the reason that we did that is because after the referendum, largely speaking in this country, with some exceptions, but not many, cities voted to remain and towns voted to leave. And in, in most nations and regions of the UK, that picture is fairly stark. And Will had written a paper about why that was. And then we watched as the debate became very sort of caricatured, as you suggested, between these kind of, you know, woke liberals in in the cities who were characterised by the other side as sort of liberal elitists who were out of touch with the common people. And on the other hand, you had these sort of what were characterised, my constituents characterised as sort of xenophobic dinosaurs who didn't understand the question and were too sort of racist to care. Between us in the political establishment, we managed to pretty much insult the entire country, I think, for four years. But actually, the truth was always a lot more complex. And before you had Brexit, you had dramatic rising support for UKIP in towns that had never traditionally voted for far-right parties before. Before that, you had years of falling turnout, which we thought was apathy but it was actually anger because to sort of paraphrase George Eliot, because we couldn't hear that roar that lies on the other side of silence. And we took all the wrong cues from what people were trying to tell us when they voted for UKIP. You know, a lot of people said that this is just a racist vote, but how could that be that, you know, 25% of Wigan had suddenly become racist overnight? It just doesn't make sense. And so we wanted to get a bit more of the complexity back into the debate. And we also wanted to start looking at where the commonalities were a bridging project, if you like. How do you start bringing people together? If you think that the big problem is division, what's the solution? We've put out things over the last few years that I think are not widely understood. For example, one of the differences in attitudes to immigration, social security, LGBT rights, there's a big difference now between towns and cities on that. But it's largely an ageing issue. If you ask young people in Wigan, my constituency, which is in Lancashire, just on the outskirts of Greater Manchester, If you ask young people in Wigan what they think about those issues, they feel as strongly as, you know, anti-racist campaigns, LGBT rights, as young people in Manchester or London. But we have more older people here because we haven't had the jobs. And, you know, ask older people in Manchester, they tend to be more socially conservative. So there's a risk in which we stereotype people and we stereotype entire communities and don't realise that there is far more to it. And often when you ask older people about their attitudes on those issues, they will recognise that their kids and their grandkids have different views. And they often have a great deal of respect for those views. It's almost like bringing the politics back into politics. That's what I feel has been missed. You know, politics is an art form. It's about trying to really hear and feel the country that lies beneath the surface. What people are saying to you is not necessarily the sentiment that exists in here. 
And you've got to understand that. And then you've got to understand what's driving it. And then you've got to work with people to solve it. And it's almost like we've lost the art of that. Like you said, followers, not leaders. Right. And it's something that, you know, over the next few years, now that I return to Labour's front bench, back in the thick of things again, I'm very determined that we are going to be that force in British politics that fills the vacuum that has been allowed to grow up over the last decade. Right. Well, one of the major issues to talk about in those years is keeping the union together. In the wake of the Brexit referendum, there are stronger voices again in Scotland. There are some polls indicating a majority of support for independence in Scotland. And at the same time, the current debate about Brexit has increased tensions within Northern Ireland. What is Labour's position on that? How does Labour deal with these growing tensions? Is it time for more devolution? Should there also be devolution in England? I think Kira and I expressed quite a common view on this during the leadership contest. When I spend time in Scotland, over the last few years, I've really, really felt when you talk to people in towns in Scotland, so many of the challenges that they face are exactly the same as the challenges that we face in Wigan. And I think it is now undeniable that we need a settlement that hands people power far closer to home. So not just devolution to Holyrood, but devolution beyond Holyrood so that people who live in towns and are outside of Edinburgh and are outside of Glasgow feel that they are included in the political conversation and that they have a political system that is responsive to the things that really matter to them. You know, the crumbling high streets, the lack of opportunities, the fact that young people have to move away, the chronic problems with public transport. These things do deeply affect the fabric of people's lives. It affects whether they can take up work opportunities whether they feel pride in their area, whether they feel rooted in a world that's often spinning out of control, whether they can see their family and have strong relationships with grandparents or grandchildren. We've neglected those quite badly in the political system. And I strongly came to the conclusion before I even came into Parliament when I worked with homeless teenagers that in the end, people have to be the architects of change in their own lives. And the political system has to allow that to happen. It has to enable that to happen. This is not a laissez-faire argument for politics to step out the way and great things just happen. We have to be there as a partner, walking alongside people at the toughest moments of their lives to deliver on the change that they want to see. But when you talk about this, in particular to the Scottish media or even the Westminster media, it immediately becomes a question of independence. Do you want a second referendum? Do you support independence? I mean, my view on that is pretty clear. I've been consistent. I don't believe we should keep having endless referendums. I didn't want a second Brexit one, and I don't want a second independence referendum. I think the country desperately needs to come together and start to heal, not to find multiple ways to divide ourselves from one another. You know, when we had the last referendum campaign, it was the SNP who said this was a question that was now settled for a generation. I just don't think you can keep reopening those wounds and dividing people from one another. And if there were to be a referendum, like in the last one, I would be campaigning strongly to say to friends in Scotland, stick with us. Yeah, I believe in the United Kingdom. I always have and I always will. A few years ago, I was at an event with many high-level representatives of European Social Democratic Parties. And I was struck that most were more inspired by French President Emmanuel Macron than by then-Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. How do you believe that the relationships between the Labour Party and its brethren and sisters in Europe should develop in the coming years? Well, we've taken a decision in the last few months to stay in the Party of European Socialists, the progressive mm -hmm. grouping. 
because we believe very strongly that Britain has to have a close relationship with our friends and allies across the European Union after we, we have left, but after we've left the transition period and defined our future relationship, geography matters history matters and that relationship will continue to be incredibly important to us. I think Brexit was conceived in a world before Covid and I think Covid has been a very stark reminder including to a number of Tory MPs, front bench MPs who supported the Leave campaign. I think it's been a real eye-opener for a lot of people and a real reminder that we have to work together and those partnerships matter. That having been said, on the Labour benches, there is no argument now that Brexit has been decided, the question is over. So the key for me is to break the cycle that we've had in Britain over the last few years of always fighting the last battle and look forward to the future and say, how do we have a very close partnership? We should have a relationship with the EU, but we also need to start thinking about what our relationships with individual European countries will look like. And it was really interesting that you mentioned Macron. Because I think Macron is attracting a lot of attention on the left at the moment for the way in which he's taken a country like France, which is a big country, but not a global superpower, you know, the size of the US or China, for example. And he's had a very activist campaigning agenda around the world. And there is a sense in which that has been lost in Britain. Global Britain has come to mean isolationist Britain at precisely the moment that we need to be reaching out and building friends and alliances to stand up for some of the values that we believe in. There is a cross-party alliance forming in the House of Commons, perhaps not on the government benches, but on their back benches, that says we've got to get that back. So even if right-wing media exaggerated the extent of the problem, the Labour Party has been struggling with anti-Semitism within its ranks for years, but particularly under Jeremy Corbyn. And similarly, anti-Semitism is on the rise, including anti-Semitic violence within Europe, but also within the UK. What should Labour do? First thing that we did during the leadership contest, Keir and I, very strongly, but also the, all the other candidates, Becky, Emily, Jess, apologised for what had happened. And that was important because actually until that moment, there were senior people in the Labour Party who refused to even recognise that it had happened, let alone right. apologise for it. I won the endorsement of the Jewish Labour movement during the leadership contest. And I've always felt very strongly about this issue, I guess, partly because my dad is from India. And as someone who's half Indian, I know what racism feels like. But there's a particular sort of racism towards Jewish people. It's a racism that punches up, not down. And it argues that Jewish people are rich, privileged and powerful and therefore wrongly and disgracefully considers them to be a legitimate target. That finds its home in sections of the left. And that is the poison that was allowed to enter our party. Now, I think we are starting to turn that around, but it takes time. So we have reached out and started to try and repair a trusting relationship with the Jewish community and many of those Jewish organisations. And they're working with us on what comes next. We're setting up an independent process. There have been a number of expulsions from the party. Our new general secretary is looking at issues like training and awareness because some of the problem is simply about people understanding how to conduct themselves, how to communicate, what an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory looks like. To be honest, when I took on this job as the Shadow Foreign Secretary, a lot of progressive partners around the world were horrified about what had happened to the Labour Party in this regard and felt mm -hmm. that as a progressive family, it was a real blow to all of us collectively. I want us to go from that place to a place where we're seen as a, a beacon of best practice in relation to this. 
Though I recently had Professor Mona Lena Crook on the show to talk about her new important book, Violence Against Women in Politics, which she defines as the use of violence, verbal or physical or economic, to keep women out of politics. And she often refers to experiences by your labor colleague, Jess Phillips. Now, as a prominent woman and woman of color, I imagine you must have had to endure a lot of this type of violence too. What do you think society and political elites should do about this? It's a big question. The thing that springs to mind, first of all, is about political culture. I think the political culture that we've allowed to grow up in recent years in Britain has been toxic and very, very difficult for anyone to exist in, but particularly women. At the last election, on all sides of the House, there were a lot of women who stood down saying that they couldn't take the levels of abuse, the levels of vitriol anymore. And, you know, for those women who had an option to go and do something else, I think there was a real sense that this is not what they wanted to put themselves and particularly their families through. My sort of experience, it, of course, there's been racism, there's been sexism, but Brexit was something else again with the threats, the death threats, the rape threats, the constant drumbeat of, you know, threats against your family. That was a very difficult thing to deal with, and particularly because Jess was very, very good friends with Joe Cox, and I was pretty friendly with her too, although not as close. It's hard to overestimate how, what an impact that had on all of us and still continues to have on all of us and how we feel about what's been allowed to happen to politics over the last few years. One of the ways that you can deal with it is the way that people like Jess Phillips, Stella Creasy and others will do. They are brilliant at speaking out, standing up, uncompromising in their right to express their views, and they inspire other women to do that too. They've definitely done that for me. They're also incredibly supportive of other women, and you do find a lot of that in politics. Cross-party, women will reach out and support one another. I remember the Liberal Democrat MP, Sarah Tether, writing me a note when I was a new MP, and I've been in the House of Commons wearing a suit with a top on, and they pointed a picture of the camera down my top, And some of the national newspapers ran sort of opinion polls about whether my clothing was appropriate and so on. And now I'm so sort of embattled by it all that I just wouldn't even bat an eyelid. But, you know, when you're new, it feels like a very deliberate tactic to shut you up. And people like Sarah Tether wrote me, Gloria Di Piero, you know, said, you're not hiding from this. You're right, they're wrong. And, you know, we're still going to do this. So I think there's lots of things you can do. I also think, though, that, There is something quite dangerous about the political moment at the moment where you have leaders in the UK and many other, you know, big countries around the world who use misogyny as a weapon to try to stir up their activist base. I recognise that tactic because I've seen it on the far right for a very long time here. And, you know, this trying to play to people's sense of grievance where you've got particularly men in towns where jobs have gone, status has been lost, and they try to use, you know, misogyny as a tool to sort of stir up that sentiment. I think it's really, really dangerous that that's been allowed to enter the mainstream. And I think we have to be far more ambitious, far smarter, far harder at calling that out. Do the male politicians do enough? Because you've talked a lot about the solidarity between female MPs, including between parties. But this seems to be an issue that is very, very important and daily lived pretty much by female politicians, but rarely mentioned by male politicians. What should they do? 
I think actually that there have been a, a number of men that I've come across over the years who've been real allies in all of this. John Burko, I know it's not fashionable to say this, but I always found him an enormous ally in this. One of the biggest problems I have in politics actually is not that I'm half Indian or that I took a Brexit position, but actually just that I've got a five-year-old son we live in the north of England and I work in London and in a place with the most bizarre working practices that you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the votes are never predictable. The hours are very unpredictable and very late. You know, I'm not moaning about it, but it was built by wealthy, privileged men for wealthy, privileged men. Right. And it works for them and it doesn't work for people who don't fit that bill. So it doesn't work for young dads either who find themselves in a similar position. And John Burko, Jeremy Corbyn, actually, when I served in his shadow cabinet, Keir Starmer, have all been real allies in that. They recognise it, they understand it, they protect you. And that's been really helpful. But it has largely been women, I think, who've advanced this. I was PPS to Tessa Jowell. I really do think her generation erode a real debt of thanks by us because they didn't just advance the situation. You know, Harriet Harman getting more women into parliament through the All Women shortlist, which I came in on breaking the cycle of 100 years of men representing this town. But they also looked after each other and that set a tone and a culture that politicians like Jess and Stella and I have inherited that has been really, really important and will continue to be important. So you were recently criticised for a BBC interview in which you said, and I quote, we stand up for Britain, we stand up for British people, we stand up for British interests, and we always put that first. End of quote. And like Billy Bragg, who I interviewed a few months ago, you believe in so-called progressive patriotism. But how do you express this progressive patriotism without amplifying the frames and the phrases of the far right? Well, I thought David Lammy's response to that interview was quite interesting. You know, he came out very strongly and said, I do not accept that believing in this country is a racist endeavor. I am British. And I have the right to be proud of my country. This is my flag, not theirs. And I felt that very, very strongly when I was growing up in the 1980s. I was brought up in Manchester. It was a time when Combat 18 and other far-right groups were particularly active, although we've seen a huge increase in that activity again recently. But Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was a very different time to the sort of early 2000s. It was 1980s, 1990s, and those groups were particularly active. I always felt very strongly that they should not have been allowed to appropriate the flag. I did a speech a few years after I was elected about patriotism because I'd felt very much that the right had been allowed to appropriate the concept of patriotism. You know, the left was in a bit of a mess about it. It was during the era of Ed Miliband's leadership with, you know, the row about Emily Thornberry and the white van man and the flag. Mm -hmm. For me, this is about common endeavour, And patriotism as opposed to nationalism, I think, is something that brings people together, that allows you to celebrate those common bonds that hold you together. When we have a VE Day party on my street, we had a socially distanced one this year in Wigan, that is about us coming together and celebrating our community. I know my neighbours, I like my neighbours, and we we look after one another. And, you know, particularly in relation to the armed forces, I think we've got ourselves into a really strange place in national politics over the course of my adult lifetime, where... It's felt by a lot of people in the armed forces that we have a real disdain for that public service when, you know, somebody who represents a town where lots of people go off and serve in the armed forces, 
I would always rather that our young people were living, not dying for their country. But the fact that they're prepared to do that and act as a force for good around the world, prepared to put their lives on the line to keep us safe and their families make those sacrifices too. That's one of the most patriotic left-wing things that I can imagine is standing up for other people. The strong standing up for the weak, that is something that we should absolutely understand and celebrate on the left and not allow the far right to appropriate. So you recently joined an initiative to save Wigan Athletic from financial ruin. What role does the club play within the community of the town? You know, along with our rugby league club, the Wigan Warriors, it's, it's the absolute beating heart of the town. I grew up in Bury, which is just down the road from here. It's part of Lancashire, where the football club collapsed a few years ago. And it's hard to overstate what that means to people. You know, my stepdad was a lifelong season ticket holder at Gig Lane. You know, there are family memories, family history, family identity bound up in that club, you know, just as there are for many Wigan Athletic supporters. Everywhere you go in Wigan, you find the club somewhere in the community, whether they're doing training sessions with the kids or they're teaching kids to read in the classroom, because for some of those kids, the only person that they're really going to listen to and going to get to knuckle down is the football player that they've admired all their lives. You know, economically it matters. It matters in terms of our symbol in the world. And don't forget that Wigan is a town where, until relatively recently, we did power the world through hard, difficult, dirty work in the coal mines. And people are very well aware of that. You know, we helped to build this country's wealth and influence. And then gradually over the last 40 years, you've seen those jobs disappear and that status disappear. And the football club in many towns comes to symbolise something really important about pride in your community and pride in your identity as well. The fact that we've allowed a global system to grow up so that those clubs are at the mercy of global financiers with institutions that don't protect the fans and often treat the fans as an afterthought just seems to me that this is indicative of a system that has gone badly, badly wrong. And to sort of go back to where we started, this is where you see populism thrive in times of fear and insecurity, where the things that matter are not valued or protected. That is the sign of a political system that isn't working. And so when people say it has to change, when they vote for Brexit, when they vote for Trump, when they say it has to change, we should listen to that and we should respond. So finally, what is the most important misperception about the Labour Party? So I'm going to say something a bit left field here, but we are a curiously socially conservative party, conservative with a small c. There is a long tradition in the Labour Party of gradual change, evolution, not revolution. And, you know, for all the talk of radicalism, that strain does still strongly exist in the party. You know, I'm often asked, why has Labour never had a woman leader? And my experience of having been in this party for 25 years, but also, you know, having come through as the first ever woman to represent Wigan and that having happened on an all women shortlist and going through a leadership contest, I would say our members are cautious about making radical change. They believe in a fundamentally different vision of society, particularly from the one that we have now. But they are one of our biggest assets because they understand and know that change has to be built through consent. And this is a cautious country. This is, a, this is an evolutionary, not a revolutionary country. And if you don't do that work, if you don't build that change by consent, then you find that it doesn't outlast the government that you represent. That's one of the reasons why I've always felt very strongly about community organising and community empowerment. 
because the great lesson of 13 years of the last Labour government is that the Shore Start, which is conceived and executed from Whitehall, doesn't survive, but the community energy co-op that is co-owned and run by hundreds of local people is still here to this day. You know, there's no shortcut to that change. It comes the hard way, and that, I think, is one of Labour's great secret strengths. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Lisa. Thanks very much. Despite the abuse, Lisa remains highly active on social media. You can follow her on Twitter at at Lisa Nandy and at Facebook and Instagram at at Lisa Nandy MP. There you go. I've stopped recording now. Me too. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Rini Melody Baker. I see him down the dunk out, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Captain Tau turned out a little weird.